Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. about too many games carries with it a notion that those who don't have big enough budgets to make or promote their games don't deserve a place in the market. But the wave of cheaply made corporate cash-ins that led to the crash of 1983 are not really analogous with small developers all trying to find a place for their visions of today. The sheer variety of types and styles of games that exist in the marketplace now would not even be remotely conceivable in 1983. Now, especially with the relative ease and access of software like Unity or Twine or GameMaker, Many new voices are throwing their hats in the ring. From any other perspective other than a failure of most of these to achieve large-scale commercial success or visibility, there are not too many games. That is the voice of, not the voice, rather, but the words of Liz Ryerson uh, in a de-orbital piece called There Are Not Too Many Games, What the Indie Apocalypse Panic Ignores. I'm Danielle Riendo, and this is Waypoint Radio, episode 203. Joining me today are Natalie Watson. Hi. Patrick Klepek. Hello, hello. And Rob Zachney. Hey, hey. So today I figured, uh, and not just me, we all figured, uh, we might look at a couple of pieces of recent criticism, uh, sort of in keeping with the theme lately of uh, kind of looking at a few pieces of things. Uh, and this sort of indie apocalypse piece in Deorbital uh, was one of the ones that came up as being really relevant and really interesting right now. I think it's particularly timely, especially, Natalie, because we have you re- resurrecting the free play feature. Oh, God, I was like, what did Waypoint. I do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm this, very welcome to that. your review, Natalie. Oh. We're actually recording it as a Waypoint Radio. That's we need content. Is. And so we're actually, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to edit your next piece uh, right here in front of everyone. Oh, no. So, Natalie, uh, oh, yeah, you've been marker. flooding the market with a glut of cheap games. Uh, would you say that's been a net positive? They're not cheap. They're not cheap. They pay what you want. So, I don't I don't think they're cheap, actually. So, I disagree. Whale. Yeah. You can do what you want. So, really, it is great. So, that's my <laughs> argument. Well, I think we've heard enough. Uh, I think... Like that raise locked in and yep. uh, title bump. Hell too? yeah, title bump for sure. Hell yeah, I'm I'm here for it. Welcome to the union, Natalie. You're, you're allowed wow, in now. I finally made it. Yay! <laughs> God, um, we almost humor. don't have a contract. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is all very topical. Look, this Rob, very... I changed my Twitter avatar. All right. I know. I saw. I'm very pleased. We all look the same now. I saw a tweet recently where somebody was like, some of these people are hot. 
Please, like, Vice, Vice, please, like, recognize your union contracts. I want people to have their avatars back, and some of these people are hot. That was, like, a thing I saw. That's a real complaint. Wow. Well, well real Vice. Everyone's got their thing. Listen to the people, Vice. Yeah, listen to the people. They want the avatars back. There's, a, want... there's a drought on Twitter, apparently, with these, with these avatars. <laughs> yeah, not enough horny on Twitter right now. Got to bring back the avatars. Damn. Well, not anyway, enough. free play. <laughs> anyway, free play and indie apocalypse. It's all tied together. It's all very real. I I feel like or first first question I want to ask uh, folks. I have been hearing about the indie apocalypse for many years. Uh, I obviously am close friends with a lot of uh, small game designers, indie game designers, and I remember going to a panel at GDC 2014, maybe 2015, probably 2014. That was like the indie apocalypse, where several you know, relatively successful indie game developers sort of showed up and were like, yeah, I was doing really well. And then in the last couple of years, kind of one of the main points being after Steam changed its sort of curation process, uh, we made like a 20th of what we did on the previous game to the next game. And the games, you know, reviewed, it was sort of like controlling for like, oh, the reviews were consistently good throughout. It wasn't like, oh, we made a piece of shit and it didn't do well. It was, you know, they had some measures in there in place. Uh, and, uh, you know, people were really panicking. People who are, you know, this is a specific type of developer that I'm talking about. This is like a successful big indie developer, you know, somebody who works with a budget. This is not like a single person working in their bedroom, which I think is a lot of what uh, Liz in this piece is talking about. People who are really, really uh, working on any scale. Uh, But the type of people who are at this GDC were like, they have a budget that they work with. They have, you know, a team of at least a few people. They, you know, maybe contract art and music and they do things like that. They're not just kind of just making the DIY kind of game. Really freaking out about this kind of stuff. And that's very much the piece that Liz is responding to here. Liz is responding to a Polygon piece that sort of talks about this phenomenon. Uh, and Steam is very much sort of held to blame here. So I kind of wanted to uh, ask around the room a little bit about what have you heard about the indie apocalypse and uh, whether or not you've gotten the sense from people that, oh yeah, this is still really on these types of folks' mind, for sure. Well, I think like Liz's piece actually is is coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is that she's suggesting that most of the conversation around the notion of the indie apocalypse is like rooted in commercial yeah. capitalist um, uh, money-making uh, terms in which... Um, the the sort of uh, anxiety is rooted in, well, if you're not making money on this thing, well, then what's the point of making right. it? And I think Liz is arguing that actually the notion of the indie-pocalypse is, can be seen in a positive light, which is that the democratization of tools, the, um, the uh, sort of accessibility of, of different ways um, to make games um, and, and all sorts of different aesthetics and, and all sorts of different uh, economics um, is actually reflective of a very healthy marketplace of creativity in which if we're viewing the lens of the expansion of indie games purely through are they all making enough money for people to sustain themselves purely on their ability to make games that can make money that's maybe the wrong way to view the expansion of independent creativity and that actually maybe just just because just because you publish on steam and it doesn't make any money doesn't mean that it wasn't a success doesn't it mean that um it, it isn't like contributing to the broader culture. Um, and I think she's making like this this larger argument in which, you know, uh, when we have these conversations about the indie apocalypse, it is often rooted in, well, if it's not making money, well, then, 
well, then, you know, if we're not finding more ways for them to make money, then, you know, what is the point of all of this? And I think she's saying, like, well, actually, you can make art for art's sake. You can make things that, um, you know, can stand on their own or contribute to the culture, even if it doesn't contribute to that artist or a broader uh, bottom line. Yeah, certainly. I think that is absolutely what she's arguing here. I guess I'm I'm interested in sort of um, also... It's kind of all those perspectives, like from the the very, very sort of garage developer doing the DIY thing, as well as somebody who is doing this for a living and is sort of panicking over whether or not they can make another game, I guess, at this point. Rob, it looks like you're... Yeah, I mean, like on the one hand, I really like, like, what's, what's the way to put this? I like both both perspectives that are short. The, the perspective from Liz here and the perspective that's implied. Um, I sympathize with both. I think it's very, like, if my livelihood depended on making, like, decent, like, sustain my life and, you know, at least partially sustain a family, if my in livelihood for that depended on game development, I think the thrust of uh liz's argument here is kind of utopian but not reassuring right it's the, it's it's this kind of well you know a lot of artists died in poverty and fairly unknown and i'm like great not really what i want out of this uh, at this time in my life uh but at the same time i, I think the the thing that i i do really think is important that liz is drawing attention to is the indie apocalypse rhetoric really did start uh, in reaction to the end of not quite a bubble, uh, but it was more the expansion of market access. And in those early days of, uh, you know, like this was after Steam had really caught on, but before it, the floodgates were completely open, there was that period where a lot of developers and some have, some have like written posts about this. If you were like cool with Valve, if they knew who you were and they liked, the front your, page liked your games. If you were on the front page, your game was a success, yeah. regardless of what it was or, or yeah. like whether you had any uh, any renown. Like the front page was like being on the front page of the New York Times. Like it just meant your game was going to sell a certain certain amount. Mm. Right. And like Steam sales could goose your profile like tremendously. Uh, and so th there was this era where it, it was a little bit like it was a little bit clubby. And I think that was partly just a uh, artifact of the era and the way Steam was sort of struggling to, the way Steam is still struggling to scale, but uh, particularly back then. And so a lot of the Indiepocalypse discussion started from people who had been in that club, who had been able to have easy and somewhat privileged access to the Steam storefront. And as that changed, and as more and more stuff was let onto the marketplace, uh, yeah, the discoverability problem uh, became greater. Steam no longer became uh, an easy way to sort of goose your goose your sales. Uh, we saw this repeated a little bit, I think, in the last year with the rush to get games on Switch, uh, where for a while there, if you were early to Switch, uh, you were making you know you were making much more money than you than you were through through other channels because the store was new and it was underpopulated mm -hmm. those days are already ending and and so i i do think like the indie apocalypse begins as people who had the right connect like good connections and who had a lot of like mainstream industry experience uh 
as the market they thought they were joining began to evaporate in the midst of this democratization, which has had a lot of good sides that Liz points out here, but also does it sort of create a race to the bottom that good art might be coming out of this, but are good livings or good sustainable paths coming out of it? Well, I think so much of the problem has to do with like these platforms um like resist like not curating their their storefronts in the first place like i think when i think of what feels clogged to me is seeing games not made by indie like the games that the games that feel like cloggers to me are the ones that are like reskins of games that already exist like seeing like a gajillion diner dash games in the app store or you know what i mean like those are the games that i'm like that i feel like i'm weeding through to find gold of you know independent developers that are putting original creative content out there um but the most frustrating thing is how unable and unwilling for first of all how un unwilling the Nintendo eShop and Steam have been in in providing any sort of curation or even just like in terms of the eShop's sake, like navigation. Like there's no clean way or easy way of navigating through that store unless you're searching for keywords or you're searching like literally through the entire log of games, which are now, I think one of the articles said like over, there's over a thousand some games on the Nintendo Switch. Um, so that's what frustrates me because I do think there's something about just like discovering. I do think there's something, and I think there are, there is potential in that. Um, but it is just, it is, there is no room to discover. It's just completely inaccessible unless you're spending so much of your time. And so, so many of these games aren't like even being exhibited or profiled in a way that you can really get a sense of what they are like that's why I'm such a fan of demos because I feel like and I know demos take extra work and demos you know they're not it is not a small ask to ask for a demo but I, I do feel like those can um anytime I see a demo on on the Nintendo eShop I usually download it because I'm just willing to try anything and try new games and see if there's something I like because I want that discover like I want to find something um yeah i think you're absolutely right that discoverability is a huge issue here so i i'm somebody who uh the idea i think again like as patrick was saying i do think the kind of idea of a lot of amazing creative work is being done now and that's incredible and that is a net positive of mm -hmm. uh, you know some of the tools and of some of the sort of uh, design processes and some of the information that's out there and there's like an idea here of like garage games or very 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 small personal works as like almost a saving grace in some ways or almost like a just wow this is incredible and this never existed before you know not necessarily before but this never existed in 1983 you know the way people talk about the crash uh, but i play a i think a lot of very very tiny personal games i i used to do the free play feature now i'm glad natalie that you're doing it but um i'm constantly playing tiny free games you know sort of from creators you know, especially queer creators um certainly on things like itch.io uh and i and i know some people do but i suspect that many people don't many people just don't know what's out there and what's getting out there and so discoverability and curation uh just is a massive massive issue here and there's something that um 
I do want to talk a little bit. I want to quote uh, Liz again here, uh, talking about, yeah, I think really sort of honing down her point uh, about not just discoverability, but sort of about the types of games that when people talk about the indie apocalypse or they talk about the flood of content, they're not talking about, uh, they're talking about a very specific type of experience, right? So she says, that's not to say there aren't plenty of exploitative business practices out there as well, or poorly planned, poorly made projects, falsely advertised, or any number of other things that irk many gamers. The flood of these games uh, runs the full gamut of quality from total drivel to forgotten masterpieces. But it's easy, uh, easy to forget how video game marketing has been hyper-directed towards a very specific, heavily male, quote, hardcore gamer audience. Because of years of market research leading to the conclusion that this resulted in higher profits, this has created a culture that is very hostile to things that exist outside of its bounds, where there are a lack of established alternative niches that might be able to meaningfully track or appreciate all the different types of games coming out, uh, coming out now that alienate that hardcore demographic. Uh, and I'll point to some resources that I use to find sort of weird games, like weird little games that uh, are awesome and great. Uh, there are newsletters. Itch.io actually does a great job with newsletters and sort of highlighting some of the games on there. There are curated Twitter feeds. There's one called Warp Door. It's amazing. There's one called Weird Fucking Games. Uh, that is amazing. But it's still hard out there. There are still people making work every day. I make little games all the time. And I put them out. Uh, when I say all the time, I should say I work on things that are scoped for like 48 hours that I spent two years on because I mean, I have a lot of hobbies and things like that. But I did want to ask if other people had other sort of feeds or other places where they look for these things or if, or if it's just like, oh, I have a friend who told me to play this and it was great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's largely what um, happened. You know, it's a mixture of, you know, folks pitching me on things randomly and then Often it's just, yeah, I, I don't really use storefronts or anything like that. It's it's mostly, hey, you should play this. I've I've heard I've heard you're interested in these sorts of things. So I, I, I largely re- rely on word of mouth because I find the storefront algorithms to be mostly worthless for 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 me at least. Um, uh, that's been 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 mostly my experience. I look at a lot of screenshots to be honest. No, I mean, <laughs> gifts. <laughs> gifts yeah. are very good. You gifts know? are good. Um, at, like things that can give you that quick taste of what a game is that doesn't require the commitment to sitting down to a let's play of varying quality like man fucking even trailers are too much for me sometimes these days we're like i'm just like clicking through i was like don't give me the wind up like i know this is only a minute and a half but like i really only need seconds in yes i need only really i want the gif is what i want it's like i say just give me halfway through to show me what the game it's like if i gotta go all the way in to get your gameplay montage like come on come on like you know what attention spans are these days Here's but here here's the thing though. What if discoverability uh, is kind of an unsolvable problem? In, like because the way platforms are moving right now, we're talking about things like Steam. You're seeing similar dynamics crop up on Amazon, right? Where there's the person who makes the real product, and then there's a half dozen like knockoff versions of that product uh, that are basically trying to like cut into its its slice of the They're market. They're trying to trick the algorithm through reviews and other things to try and just like siphon off uh yeah, using like SEO SEO and to yeah. uh match uh like the actual name or the actual keyword of the the original product itself. There's a and... really good I think it was a reply all episode from some months back in which they like dig into Amazon algorithm uh, fuckery, um, like specifically involving like a lot of like weird Chinese companies shipping things to people that they didn't 
order. It's weird. Go look it up. It's fucking fascinating. But yeah, I think like it speaks to like if it, like can the can the storefronts get better? But I think Rob, your point, it stands. Like okay, what if we just take it at face value that it's not going to ever get very good? And so no. like, then then what do you do? Right, because I think I don't think you can have the mass democratization of these platforms and have that carefully curated like man if you see it on steam you know it's probably pretty good right Right. like those days are dead and gone and i'm nostalgic for them in some ways right like i'm nostalgic for when browsing steam was like going into a candy candy store as opposed to dumpster diving right like those two experiences (laughs) like uh definitely stand apart in my head but Short of massive overhauls of those systems, which do not seem to be in the cards given the incentives and values of the people running those platforms, I think one of the things uh, uh, Liz is sort of pointing at here is this notion that um, we need to think like we need to create or or at least figure out some form of the game industry, some form of game development that divorces sustainability support from uh commercial success and i think one of the things running through this piece is for the for most of like cultural history art and creative pursuits weren't things you did like most people did primarily to make a a livelihood out of and in some ways it's really neat that you know, we've we've been born into a world where there are a lot of jobs where people can do stuff that you can pursue their passions and interests and actually make money from that. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, but at the same time, it's also led to this. It's allowed market logic to govern everything. Yeah. And suddenly you have everyone approaching their art from this perspective of not just what do I want to say? What do I want to make? But what can I make a living off of? There's, there's some real shit talking going on in this piece. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a subtweet aspect uh, yeah. to, the, to, to the article <laughs> as well. Uh, and I don't think a lot of the people that uh, are sort of being referred to obliquely in this piece would deny it. Like, I mean, a lot of people were pretty frank about uh, how the, the indie bubble was formed and, and, and why it burst. Uh, and but, would, also would agree with Liz probably in saying like, yeah, I'm compromising my art because yeah. I want to buy a house or whatever. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that like she's making an accusation that I don't think people would necessarily run away from. That said, I do think she at, at various points is, you know, arguing that people are losing some of their soul in the pro- some of their art in the process. But I just think a lot of people would say, yeah, of course I am. In the same way that like I think any of us would say like, yeah, I'm not doing my pure with what I want to do every day, I'm compromising that with the ability to, you know, th- that you're part of a business. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 um, I, I think one of the things running through this piece and, and one of the anxieties it taps into is that I think sort of the unspoken thing is I suspect it used to be a lot easier to have like your day job and then have time and space and energy for your passions and pursuits, right? Like, I mean, you know, 50, 60 years ago, most families had like one primary earner and, you know, it was unequal as hell, but like largely women were not expected to work. And that somehow 
still allowed people to raise families off of one income. And now we're sort of in this model where everyone works and the jobs are getting ever more precarious and uh, more demanding and less rewarding. And I think there's there's kind of a implied anxiety here that if you can't find a way to make your art your work, how are you ever going to find the time and opportunity to actually make it at all? Yeah, I definitely want to respond to that. There, There is a sense, and this is something I talk to my parents about since they lived through a completely different era, of course. Um, it also has to do with unions. A lot There were a lot of very strong unions in America in the 50s and 60s. And you sort of, you look back on sort of propaganda videos even at the time and, and people talk about being the most normie-ass people, but they went to their union meetings, uh, which is very interesting. I think a lot of this is so tied into labor exploitation and we're all so terrified of losing our jobs uh, that we're willing to work a million hours a week and we're willing to do all these things and make all these compromises and there's that idea there was like a famous tweet about like you know dying to spend two hours a night doing your writing or doing your art or doing whatever work it is right like there's it's not just a tweet it's like a famous thing right there's there's memes about it there's people you know falling asleep at the laptop kind of thing there's that girls episode where however you feel about girls she took that corporate writing job and she got benefits and she could go to the gym and she could see a doctor you know all these things that like sound like pretty basic things in life but she was just so amazed by them and then went home to write her novel at night and like fell asleep at her laptop every night right there is a terror of living in this sort of uh the realities of what labor is in 2018 uh and sort of being able to make a living on these things i would feel a lot less bullish on this if we had things like universal health care or universal basic income or any of the sort of safety nets that maybe used to exist or maybe they existed only in my sort of uh imagination at this point but there is such a precarity to this that I do feel a tiny bit of pushback on, right? And I consider Liz a personal friend, and she's written for the site before. Like, I probably should have said that up top, uh, but, you know, like, take it all with a grain of salt kind of thing. Um, but she does strike me as somebody who uh, would not compromise for their art. And there is always going to be people who who feel very, very strongly about that, who feel very strongly about, like, not doing any compromises, about making the things that they want to make and feeling very confident and very strong in those things and not feeling a need to kind of sell out and sell your soul, <laughs> uh, so to speak, right? Uh, and that's real too. That's a very real instinct to have, I think. Uh, it's just very complex and very complicated for various people in various stages of life. You have a kid, you have a family, et cetera, et cetera. You have responsibilities. Like it's, it, that does cause that tension, right? So it's not easy to deal with. Natalie, I did want to ask you a little bit about your experiences on free play. I know I sort of opened jokingly on that, but I'm actually very excited that we're doing it again. It's a future I've always like really, really believed in. And it's it's one of those ways where I want in some tiny way for Waypoint to be a type of curation or be a type of criticism for this kind of work. And I'm I'm so glad we're doing it again. And you don't have to like go on and on or anything, but I just wanted to give you space here to uh to to you know, say how you felt about free play because you're starting it again. Yeah, I'm super, I'm super stoked to be doing it. Um, I think that um, even just having the opportunity to play so many more games than 
like sinking a gajillion hours into one game uh like in if i wasn't doing free play i would probably be playing red dead too <laughs> and i think i'm actually like better suited doing free play because i think i'm able to spend time thinking critically about like several different pieces um all of which like i have a i have a list of like 10 or 15 that i want to get through <laughs> before i like awesome. go but i also like need to go searching again the one thing that has been difficult is like the 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 curation thing you know like who do i who do i trust like to present me with if i'm like looking at you know t- the like twitter accounts that you mentioned or the newsletters and things like that who do i trust to like curate these things for me um i think there's like a lot of power in curation and like that is why i don't like when i say these 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 marketplaces need more curation like i also like think that curation like is easily corruptible (laughs) um so when but but doing the free play thing has been nice because it is my job to spend time like going through this platform it is like my job to just browse and try things and see like what I think of them um and so I feel really lucky to do that and I also am I wish there was like an easier way to like I I remember messaging you about this, Danielle, of, like, an easier way of, like, I want to play games from developers in New York City. Or I want to play games uh, from... I mean, there there are keywords. So I've been using, like, the keywords. The first keyword that I used was food because I really wanted to play (laughs) it, which ended up being my first uh, free play was uh, on Hot Pot Panic. Um, But... I've been trying to use the keywords more than sort of just like going through top to bottom, um, like the whatever is like most popular of the free games or whatever. Um, so by by going through the keywords, I feel like I'm adding sort of like these interesting, um, uh, not res- like an interesting way of going through it in in that like I'm not looking at a top 20 list or a top 30 and picking from there i'm looking at like what are the games about about cooking or what i looked up like autumn and fall and so there's a, a few games on my list that have to do with like the fall season because i wanted to play some fall games so um i think using the keywords in an interesting way um have been useful for me to go outside of what i think the normal site of of visibility is on on itch.io or itch.io i always call it itch.io i, I do don't... too <laughs> <laughs> itch.io is totally a thing i love it <laughs> no it's awesome um and it, and it is worth saying um from our perspective right i i think that we're re sort of restarting this after a period of, of it kind of dying a little bit because of the sort of realities of what you do at a video game website which is i would love to devote many hours of my week to like really obscure 
games or really obscure mechanics or like wow look at this one mechanic and talk for 10 and a half hours about it because i'm but but it's hard to um <clears throat> it's hard to justify that because three people would read it right uh, campster was tweeting about this campster the really awesome uh youtube critic if you're not uh listening and watching his stuff it's a big recommendation there but was tweeting about like how bad the traffic is often uh, when he, you know, tackles an indie project or even, he was saying, even like mid-level, like fairly well-known projects, you know, at Prey Moon Crash and a couple others he actually cited. He actually just showed his like YouTube graph of like, he's like, oh, I'll, I'll lose 10 subscribers today because I talked about this really cool project. So I, I just want to like recognize that it it is, it can be brutal out there for putting this stuff in front of people as well and it can be tough to sort of um you know recognize the value in it uh, because this is sort of like as liz is saying like there's a lot of artistic merit here right there's a lot of uh, value in terms of like moving the, the medium forward or moving it in interesting ways and exploring a lot of things in interesting ways whether they're commercial or not uh is is the difficulty and it's something we all have to kind of wrestle with i guess Successfully or not, and speaking <laughs> of uh, maybe commercial or maybe not, there was another really lovely piece uh, this week uh, that we wanted to chat about a little bit, and it has to do a little bit with discoverability, although this is a much more personal piece, and we're going to talk about that right after taking a break. I already see Kato typing, like, hey, come on. All right, folks, there might be an ad. Maybe we'll have an ad. Maybe not. You know, we're talking about commercialization. So uh, we will be right <laughs> back after this brief uh word from our sponsors. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, and we're back. And uh, this was another awesome piece uh, this week uh, that we wanted to take a look at. It's from Unwinnable. Uh, and it's sort of speaking of visibility and discoverability in some ways. Although, again, it's a much more personal essay. It's a much more personal piece uh, from a game designer named Amanda Hutchins, who wrote about their experiences sort of showing a game. And it's a game that has 100 buttons, which is very cool, at the Kentucky State Fair. Uh, and sort of talked about their upbringing in Kentucky and their southern grandparents and how this is sort of something their southern grandparents would actually, you know, understand what they were doing. You know, it's kind of one of those things or not even understand what they're doing, but like, oh, it's in the Kentucky State Fair. I know what that is. I may not know what a game designer does, but I know what that is. So I'll read a tiny bit uh, from Amanda Hutchins piece, uh, the Kentucky State Fair. I have attended a few events this year, small and large, bringing with me a game that features 100 buttons. I've shown with Red Bull and next to baby castles and in large convention halls and in the back of co-working spaces. I've driven hours and hours or taken trains across country to do this, 
and I would do it all again. And each of these steps is another and a boundless chance to actually reach people with an installation that has no life other than this. There's no monetization future waiting on the horizon for me uh, to come and cash my check. No one is hoping to buy this project out from under me. It is perhaps the closest to art I've ever been, which means in a lot of ways, it's further than I've ever been from something that would make sense to someone in the industry. Again, that is from the unwinnable piece, the Kentucky State Fair uh, by Amanda Hutchins. Uh, one thing that really struck me in this piece, and again, it's a really lovely personal essay, and we'll have a link in the show notes, but it really talks a lot about that sort of family aspect. And uh, Amanda talks about growing up, uh, you know, queer and non-binary in Kentucky and having the kind of grandparents that would say things like, I, I feel bad for the queers because they're going to hell you know, kind of thing. Like, I don't hate them, but they're going to hell and, and like kind of growing up around that and, and having that as part of your identity and, and really taking that in. And then finally having this piece of work in, in their, you know, maybe not entirely well-known field uh, to something like their, their grandparents would understand it, but it's in the Kentucky State Fair. So therefore it's something that like, oh, my grandparents would be excited about this, about me showing something here. And there's something that really struck me about that. Um, maybe it's just because I have a weird job that's a little hard to explain <laughs> to older folks or, you know, when, when you kind of do the thing where, oh, what do you do for a living? And it's like, well, it has to do with journalism and podcasting and video games and it's like with each signifier you're losing someone a tiny bit more like you're just like okay here we go but i don't know if, if other people reacted similarly uh to the piece in that way uh, yeah i mean i i, I think uh i've expressed this on different podcasts and probably a different wayboy podcast before but yeah i've just sort of resigned myself to telling most people i make games for a living in my family it's just <laughs> It's just easier, like, yeah. rather than explaining it, even though I'll say, like, you read the, you know, like, the New York Times, right? Like, I do that. I just write about games. Like, I don't know. It doesn't seem to stick with, with a lot of <laughs> folks over a certain generational gap. And so just, yeah, I make games, and that's fine. Um, and, uh, I, like, you know, my, my father, like, understood on a certain level uh, that I wrote about games, but didn't uh, didn't fully process. I remember the one time it did come across um, – uh, for about a, a year and change, I worked for a G4. Um, and uh, during that time, uh, one of the E3s that I covered with them, they wanted to like test me on doing more uh, uh, TV stuff. And so I was co-hosting some of the uh, the live on TV stuff for some of the press conferences like Ubisoft and stuff like that, where we would do, you know, chatter before um, and after. Um, and that was like the one time my dad was like, oh, TV, I under, oh, right, okay, I get that. <laughs> um, and so he was working that day. My dad was a, a VP at Riddell. I've mentioned that before, you know, working on like, uh, they make lots of sports equipment. And so he was constantly going around the office, uh, to different meetings because he was involved in a lot of high level decisions. And so he just, he had, he mandated that the entire office turn all the like ambient TVs, like this, the stuff in the hallways to G4's coverage. And so I texted him the hours I was going to be on. And then just like in between meetings, he would just like try and like glance over at the TV and then would like text me when he like saw me on the TV. Um, this was like something like 50 TVs were just like switched over to this fucking video game coverage. <laughs> so he could hopefully catch a glance of his son uh, doing it at some point, even though he had no idea what any of the words coming out of his mouth were. were about. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I love some of the imagery. There, there's one passage here that just really resonated with me. 
Um, and I just love the way this evokes places that I think a lot of us are from and feel weirdly sentimentally attached to, even though uh, they're also like kind of foreign at this point. But uh, at one point, uh, they write, My professional life is a tour of the Midwest by highway, a timeline of icons. The hell is real sign, Wisconsin highway oases, porn stores surrounded by crosses as though they were warding off vampires and the white windmills in the Indiana fields east of Chicago. And I can see all of those things like, like, you know, particularly the, the weird juxtaposition that you come across a lot along rural highways, the, uh, porn, the, the porn store that is like the size of a freaking like Walmart surrounded by like small churches uh and it's the only thing you've seen in 45 minutes like i'm doing that drive next week for thanksgiving like what's up nebraska i'm coming like i can't wait and it's like the port you get excited about the porn store because it's at least something to fucking look at as you're like barreling down this highway in which you're going about 15 over because you're hoping to shave off half an hour on this six and a half hour drive yeah gotta get that cop radar (laughs) well ways has it that's, I, that's the only time it? I use ways. It the relies only time on I use ways. reporting a cop's position, though. Like, you, yeah, you, no, you, you need gotta get the, your valentine. The de- <laughs> oh, hell yeah, hell yeah. Emily knows what's Wait, up. Ways works what's pretty up. well during like the the holiday sprint because people tend to be reporting more. Like, yeah, we're I all kind of doing the same well, thing. So Natalie, though, like when like. If you do get pulled over, you got to stash that thing fast. You got to just like pull that right <laughs> off not, the gas. They're not illegal, although although. They can claim that it is like a distraction, like a dashboard distraction. So, yeah, I've never been pulled over with one. But my dad always says because my dad and I drive up to the mount drive up to the mountains a lot in California. And it's a far drive. And Uh there's a lot of highways that are very open. And you could shave off like a half an hour, 45 minutes if you really wanted to. So, um, nothing wrong with going 100 down a long, straight, flat, empty highway. (laughs) Like what? You're gonna you're gonna run off approved. on the flat tarmac? No, it's fine. It's just <laughs> farmland everywhere. Not even farmland. It's like desecrated farmland that isn't even the soil isn't even fruitful anymore. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Natalie! Wow. Natalie's ready to salt really? the earth. Just like Paint I will speed through your lands. <laughs> Nothing will grow in my in my wake. Uh, also, like don't get like, shit. At 100 miles an hour, if anything goes wrong. You're probably going to be in some serious trouble. Uh, but um, yeah, seriously, don't drive that don't fast. Don't drive that fast. <laughs> um, however, <laughs> I, I think the one of the other things I, I do enjoy about this piece is that um, well, this is kind of an example of creating for the satisfaction of the self yeah. uh, to an yeah. extent. Yeah. And what, what I what I find here like so lovely is it, it doesn't even really matter that. Uh, the people around you necessarily even understand what you're doing. Like the, 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 the sort of the grace or meaning you find in that relationship isn't that you're going to be able to do something that your parents or grandparents will understand and therefore validate. You don't need that understanding or validation, nice though it might be. It's that it is a way to at least have the people that you care about and love however complicated that love may be for at least a moment understand what some of your achievements mean to you and i think that's a really beautiful thing that this this piece uh brings across 
Um, and it's also, I think, just a very good example of not being writing about. We've read so many versions of this story that are from an outsider's perspective and like deeply condescending about these regions that it's just also kind of refreshing and a relief to read someone who gets at the more complicated reality of it. And the fact that like, this is not a country full of, you know, ignorant yokels who just don't understand all the video game stuff and they feel feel bypassed by the culture it's you know it's a way more complicated reality uh than that and people have their frames of reference and uh, in just a lot of cases uh there's just a breakdown of communication between those perspectives and the the frame the the reference points are so diametrically different uh that there's things that you can take for granted that it just makes sense to you that are impossibly difficult to get across to, uh, you know, family members from the other side of this divide. Yeah. I, yeah. I think part of the piece is really good at like conveying the realities of just things that are irreconcilable where it's just, okay. Like they're just, there are bridges that are just too far. And wh- how do you find meaning still within those relationships, still within those points of contact and, I think reading this piece, that's a lot of what I took away. It was like thinking a lot about my own like families and friendships and like those those different relationships and like where where you end up drawing certain lines. And it's like, all right, well, you know, these people are still in my life, but like how do I both convey my values and, and things that mean something to me while also realizing, you know, the, the lengths at which you can meaningfully, you know, bridge A to Z. And I think this like piece does a good job of like like beautifully illustrating like the various compromises you make in your life. Like, you know, this this person has made, you know, we're talking about in the frame of video games, but like from top to bottom, they've made compromises in terms of, not in terms of themselves or, or what they want to achieve, but in terms of like your ability to communicate, you know, that that part of yourself and just realizing what the limitations are. And, and not necessarily in that process, it doesn't come across as like condemning these people wholeheartedly. It's just sort of realizing the realities of situations, not accepting or like forgiving of those people necessarily, but just like sort of the messy reality that we all find ourselves in at the end of the day. Well, and I think where this sort of ties into uh, maybe Liz's piece is also that there's sort of a point here in this article that I, that I really enjoy where it's like the validation doesn't even matter. Like it's not important that people necessarily understand you or understand your truth or identity. Like you understand it. They, mm-hmm. they don't need to like, it would be nice, yeah. but your identity, your happiness can't depend on their, uh, their capacity to, to grasp what, what, what you, what you are or what you're trying to do. And the same is said of uh, <laughs> this hundred button game uh, they're showing, right? It's, there, there's there's no pretense that this is going to be, you know, the, <laughs> this is going to be the retirement project that like, man, once <laughs> I get the, once I get the, the what, what's it called? The Centenable? Yes. Uh, the Centenable into the Kentucky State, State Fair. Uh, retirement is set. Uh, it's all, it, it's all beaches. Here comes the deal. Yeah. Going to buy a farm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the. Not next to Natalie, hopefully. <laughs> no. no. Just far away. <laughs> just fucking Marty McFly right through your goddamn <laughs> right through your goddamn barn. Uh but but no, but like it's also not necessarily important that 
the game, like to an extent, the creation has to exist for the creator. It's it that's the that's the most important thing that has to be satisfied first and foremost. And it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not it is a success in terms of tons of people want to fork over money directly to you for it. That's not why it was created, uh, and that's not why it has value. And its value is not reflected in how people react to it. And I think yeah, this piece... Yeah, I think like Liz's piece does a good job of like making the argument for we should have a space for culture that exists like purely for its own sake or you know how it ephemerally contributes to culture. And then this mm-hmm. other piece is a personal articulation of someone in that space and accepting that for some of the work they do and how they arrived at it. Like I think they, they work hand in hand in like someone making a, a broader argument for how we rhetorically discuss the, the notion of why things should or shouldn't exist or what their purpose is. And then this unwinnable piece is like, well, I'm a person existing in that space and here is here's where I've arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will say that in like in relationships like this and you know friendships or family relationships like the small successes mean almost everything um when you have no hopes of achieving the large ones um i have very close friends who have no idea what i do i have family members who are disapproving um and don't understand what I do, but having like having an acknowledgement almost or like it's not validation because it's I I think what you said is right, Patrick, that like the validation like comes from within and that, you know, I think we determine I think seeking validation outside of yourself is a recipe for disaster because I, I, and I'm but also natural. Like it's also it's, natural because it's, yeah, it's, it's something I, we're so, social creatures that crave other people saying we're doing the right thing, doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, totally. So, but, but having those, those small successes of, of, you know, being able to meet on common ground on your terms for the most part, like, Instead of you having to, um, like, concede and meet on their grounds, it's like they're kind of crossing the bridge a little bit further than you are this time, if that makes sense, Um, which, like, those go a long way uh, in these contexts, I think. Yeah, like, I mean, like, even the story I shared about my dad, it's like, okay, he didn't he doesn't really understand what I do, but it's like, it was enough for me that like, he wanted to like, like he was trying. Changing the right? t- yeah. Yeah. He was yeah. trying. And, you know, it was the same way that, you know, I mean, my whole career exists because my dad went the extra mile, not understanding anything about what I did. Like he traveled with me to E3s when I was 14, 15, 16. Specifically, I remember one where he went and this is when E3 was getting a little more stringent about underage passes and underage means under 18. And, he managed to get – I managed to finagle him getting a badge, and I just said I, IGN was supposed to get me an underage badge because they're a larger corporate sponsor of E3. And I gave – I wrote down a name, and he just went to a booth and just at, kept asking people till he found that person and, like, figured it out. And it's like 
that was validation for me. Like, he didn't know yeah. what the fuck was going on, but he was like, I can, I'm going to go support my son and, like, try and figure out this thing that he's told. Like, he has some pieces in front of him, and he's doing what he can with what he had, even <laughs> yeah. if he didn't understand fully what came out on the other side. And, like, that was that was always enough for me that, like, he was showing, he was supporting what I wanted to do, even if he didn't fully understand <laughs> what it is he was supporting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that sort of thing means the universe to me uh, as well. I So this piece also hit me uh, in some other places, you know, sort of being queer, growing up in a place where it's not like I grew up in Rhode Island. It's a pretty blue state. You know, I did not grow up in Kentucky. People definitely talked about queers going to hell because I went to uh, Catholic school my entire life until college. So there was definitely that part um, for sure as part of my upbringing. But I was never fully comfortable being really outwardly queer until very recently, you know, the last couple of years of my life. Um, and I am very, very close with my family. I see them a lot. Uh, I go to on vacation with them a lot. I, actually, in sort of the South, like we go to Orlando all the time. We went a couple months ago. And I remember this trip. Uh, it was one of the kind of first times I went uh, and had short hair and like, you know, sort of the way I, I like to dress now, that kind of thing, like much more visibly queer than I kind of used to be right uh and going along and we're going to halloween horror nights and we're doing this sort of dorky thing that we all enjoy doing together and my family is extremely not queer they're a bunch of like real straight nerds straight white nerds kind of thing you know like they're very 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 straight they wear very like conservative clothes that kind of thing nobody has a tattoo in my entire family you know that kind of thing or at least my immediate family and I remember being on this trip a couple months ago and uh, very much feeling like some people were looking at me a little weird. And that's not necessarily something that's super common for me, but this was definitely happening. Uh, and it was really bothering me. I was very much like, oh, fuck, oh, here we go. Okay, I knew this was going to happen when I cut my hair. Like I knew like presenting a little bit more muscular, a little bit more tomboyish. This was going, <laughs> this was going to happen. It just doesn't really happen that much in New York. But here I am in Orlando and some people are looking at me weird. And I remember my mom really, like, being awesome and fucking great on on certain queer things. Like, she was asking me some questions that were very much showing, like, oh, she's really trying. Like, she's she's like, I've been reading some books and I would like to use the proper, you know, pronouns and, and, and know how to address people the right way. And it was just, like, the cutest, most awesome, most affirming thing in the universe. Like, it was very, like, oh, my God, this was not from the universe you were from. This is, this is, like... Aliens, you know, you're on another planet with this stuff, but you're you're trying so hard and you care and you're loving and it's really very heartwarming. And I know my story does not is not necessarily what Amanda's story is in in any way, but there was a feeling of that, that sort of affirmation uh, about identity, even if it's not necessarily coming from like a place of complete understanding or complete, you know, one to one or anything like that. Just that that showing of of somebody's trying, somebody's working towards something, or somebody acknowledges something, uh, is nice. That feels good. That is great. And it's never going to be a hundred percent. It's never going to be exactly you know necessarily what family thinks of for their child when they're growing up, or or if they're growing up in a much more sort of small town fashion or smaller place. It's never going to be that. Uh, but when people love each other enough to have a moment of affirmation or have a moment of understanding or have a moment of just being there for one another, I'm always going to cornerly 
applaud that and maybe tear up a little bit. <laughs> uh, and so that piece really kind of brought that to home uh, for me a little bit as well. Mm. So anyway, um, we have some questions. Uh, maybe I have time for about one. We're going yeah, not quite an hour. Let's do one question. This is a, this is a really good one. I think uh, this one comes from Kate. And of course, if you have questions at any point, you can send those to gaming at vice.com with the subject question. All right, here we go. Hi, Waypointeers. I have a question about other hobbies and games. You've talked some about other hobbies you have that enhance the experience of particular games, but I was wondering about the opposite effect. Do y'all find there are times when hobbies or interests take away from the gaming experience or perhaps simply shape what games you want to play? My main non-gaming hobbies are all craft-based, and I find I have almost no patience with games that involve detail-oriented puzzles or super fine motor control. I realized recently that it's because uh, if I want to use that part of my brain, I'll sew something, and that feels more satisfying to me. Doing it in a game with no physical reward is frustrating. It feels like I'm fighting against an arbitrary obstacle. More and more, I prefer games that are about building systems with moving parts, which is not a thing that my other hobbies can provide. I also find that as I get more into TRPGs, uh, my taste for certain story-based games is waning. I'd rather tell stories, uh, excuse me, tell my own stories with friends. Of course, there are also the obvious things of subject matter that we all know uh, being frustrating to play. I imagine Rob has some historical games examples where suspension of disbelief only goes so far to mitigate inaccuracies. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Great question. <laughs> I see a lot of smiling faces here. Who wants to go first? Rob does. Yeah, I saw Rob like I'm just wondering, what are the scare quotes around historical uh, implying there, <laughs> Kate? Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I, I do. Ironically, wargaming is an interesting one to bring up here. Uh, because a bit like with the tabletop RPG thing, uh, I've started playing more tabletop war games uh, in the last year. Um, I've been able to spend more time with friends who are into that hobby. And the weird thing about wargaming right now is that the most like cutting edge work is being done in tabletop uh, because the margins are better on table like on tabletop. Like you can cre you can create a smaller thing for a tabletop war game and have that be like commercially viable and sustainable as a business and as a living. Uh, whereas if you're making a computer game, you tend to need something that's a little more mass market, a little more familiar. And so one issue I've run into in the last year or so is that I used to be really into computer war games and that interest is like plummeting because increasingly now I've got this frame of reference that's like, oh, well, you know, there's like two or three board games that cover this campaign and they're like really brilliant and they're like really elegant and they're not fussy at all. Like they bring to life the, the, the theme and the subject matter, but they don't make you like, you know, count every rivet. They don't make you, uh, you know, calculate every, every one of your, you know, hundred, uh, you know, unit hit points uh, per per inventory division, <laughs> ridiculous stuff like that. Uh, and so it's become that's become kind of an issue where, uh, you know, my wargaming hobby, the two things used to sort of live in tandem, and now the tabletop side of it has kind of 
skunked the computer side of it a little bit. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of been an interesting case where, you know, one hobby, uh, kind of blasted a hole in the other. How nice for you that you have friends <laughs> to play, to play these games with you. How very nice. Wow. Well, I, you know, I mean, it, that was insulting. Sounded that was it no. sounded like it came from a place of pain. No, at the very well, least. it definitely comes from a place of pain because I have zero friends who would play a fucking board game with me ever. But also, that is so nice that you know you have a group of friends who do stuff you guys like to do together. Your second attempt was a little bit better. Natalie. Still, still <laughs> deeply sad though. Still yeah. very like I'm just I drop it was a little more, I draw pictures of a little more sad on her window. side. <laughs> I'm just a there's sad something about person. this farm that we haven't quite figured out, but this something this fucking happened. Is getting us closer. Yeah. Like Natalie, Lana's like I I took all my friends out into the countryside and left them for dead. They didn't know how far we'd gone because no. we're going 125 miles an hour for a straight hour, and I was like, walk. <laughs> they jumped out. I don't know. Look, you can oh either play fiasco with me tonight, and we'll go back to my place, and civilization will do it, oh, or. You can continue to advocate for Goldeneye, and you can walk to Goldeneye. Well, <laughs> this is too real. Too real. It's the pain's too, too, real. too real. Natalie, do you have a one of these games you just oh, can't? No, I don't. Yeah, do you have any I weird hobbies that like? I've <laughs> yeah. Let's keep scratching at this one. See what we find underneath that scab. Natalie hates uh... playing Hitman. Just can't stand it. Boring. It's too unrealistic. <laughs> oh, this again? <laughs> it's not how I would have done it. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I oh god, I was trying to think of one that it is more like the things. The question I want to answer is like the opposite, obviously. Um, what are things that I like what are hobbies that I wish I could do in real life that I just do in video games because I don't do them in real life um, I'm like looking around my room to like look at a hobby and I just don't have anything <laughs> where's, your, like, where's your hobby box just open up that hobby box <laughs> where are you I, hobbies <laughs> I'm Come out. a fucking sad person. I don't have any hobbies, <laughs> no friends. We gotta end this podcast because this is Natalie's having depressing. a real time. This is like where we crisis. like the question we wandered out onto the ice, and Danielle's like, "No, it's it's super frozen. Don't worry, guys. We can totally play out here. It's like five inches thick. No yeah. worries." <laughs> And then just Natalie's gone. Just you I've, hear, I've been gone. You I've hobby. been gone for a while. <laughs> Like those friends on the farm, they're just gone. I don't know where they went. I don't know. All right, well, I'll go. Uh, oh, oh yeah, no, go sorry. ahead. Go ahead, Patrick. Go ahead. Somebody. I say like I don't really, I don't really have something super specific, like that really fits the, the question that's being Tell asked. Tell me about your do... friends and your hobbies. <laughs> it's, I don't have. I'm a parent. I don't have friends. I just convinced myself that I'm friends with. You're my kid. married to a friend. <laughs> True. You have a friend bound to you by law. Okay, Natalie. <laughs> wow. Bound by law. That's how I introduce her to everyone else. This one can this never leave friend. me. 
And then I grip my my my, my fingers real tight. Uh. Um, I I have found myself increasingly unable to like like games that want you to just sort of like meander and wander and just sort of like enjoy themselves. I find like I cannot do that. Um, so much of my life is built around like. I, I tended to uh, uh, find myself, even pre-having a kid, I found myself uh, leaning into, like, progression-based games in which I'm always sort of advancing a thing. And now that is, like, even more the case. Like, you know, there are times even – I have lots of problems with Red Dead Redemption 2. But, like, that is a game where, like, to some degree you're supposed to just, like, kind of explore and, like, see what happens. And I'm like, nah. Like, what if, like, <laughs> the, where are the things happening because I need to, like, feel like this hour – that I have something has fucking happened in this hour. Like me just wandering and like shot a couple of deer. That doesn't feel like I've done anything. Um, and so I, um, even in which games like where you're, you are supposed to give yourself over to that. I find myself like this tendency I had in the past has now been exasperated by time constraints in which I just find myself uh, harder and harder to give myself over to experiences that are meant to be more uh, experiential and less about, at the end of it, you can look back and go, I did X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. Danielle, what have you got? I have, well, there are certain things with hand-to-hand combat in games. If It doesn't need to be, like, realistic. In fact, I I, I want it to be very fantasy-based because I, I like fighting real people so much more than I like fighting people in video games most of the time. So combat needs to give me something very, very extra or very, very different or, like, a... I sort of wrote whatever it's fine combat in games, like especially like melee combat. I'm just like, oh, fuck, I, I don't fucking care. Like, I just want to press the button because I just do not give a shit. Because otherwise, it's like, you know, grappling's so much more fun. It's just so much more fun. It's so much more satisfying and rewarding. Um, so, yeah, it's got to have like either swords or wild shit happening, or I'm just like, oh, fucking whatever. Like, the, the sort of like, Batman Arkham Asylum combat like feels pretty good. It's fi- it's fine, but it's never going to really do anything for me. So that that type of game needs to give me something very very different as well or else I'm just going to fall right off of something like that. That and like it's not really in a lot of games, so it's more of a movies and TV thing, but if like medical things are either just like a little inaccurate, I hate it. It, it again needs to either be like wild and like funny. It's like Star Trek style, like stupid alien medicine where the tricorder, you know, that kind of thing is fine or very accurate, but like something that is just like Hollywood accurate in terms of like medical terminology or even like the structure of the profession. Like I hate it so much when it's like, and this person's a first year medical student, but don't worry, they're going to help out in the accident or something. It's like a first year medical student has been reading organic chem books for a year. They haven't even seen any patients. They don't know shit. And I get mad and it's (laughs) nobody likes it. So uh, those are mine. <laughs> Get very excited. All right, I guess uh, we ended on such a happy note. I'm sorry, Natalie. I think we can wrap don't up there, Natalie. Yeah, yeah. Don't give don't don't even give Natalie another chance. We just gotta <laughs> move the fuck along. Must be nice to I'm have sorry, people Natalie. to Don't with. silence me. <laughs> it's a dark place. You know, we're all I'm in a dark place. I'm banned from my dojo. <laughs> she can't go back. Well, that was the dojo on the farm. My Are we piecing dead. it together? The farm I am a black belt in real life, though. I am. What? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I have a second degree black belt in Taekwondo and Hapkido. That's extremely cool. 
You can sure. kick the shit out of people. What do you mean? How sure, have we not had I'll you show fight? it to you. <laughs> I think we gotta. What? I think we gotta put money on this. Uh, we we need to have now. Uh, what? We need to have a match. Me and Danielle. A Natalie fight? Oh, what? absolutely not. I will die. I can't kick. I will. <laughs> I will die. I will be not. Nope. I would never fight Danielle. Danielle would crush me. She is too. She is supremely skilled. This is just like how you had a black belt in DDR play, and we saw how quickly that fell. Wow. <laughs> it would be a really Honestly, messed probably. up. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. no. I, I was going to say, it would be a, a terrible stylistic matchup because Taekwondo has so much, like, kicking and, like, kicking to the face. And what I do is, like, super in your yeah, face and, like, there hold you, you and throw you to the ground and then choke <laughs> Wouldn't you. Wouldn't even be a good matchup, so. You know? Fuck you guys. <laughs> I can't believe this. Wow, I'm going to end this podcast now. Anyway, Natalie, I'm very glad that you're a black belt. That's extremely cool. That's way higher than I am in my art as well. It's okay. I was like 12 when they gave it to me. You know? <laughs> it was like I'd been there for so long. I think they were just like, take it. Wait, you I'd got a participation like- black belt? <laughs> oh, no. No, my we mom got- paid for that black belt. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what is happening? Oh, no. I don't know what's real anymore. <laughs> Nothing is real. Nothing, nothing is real in my life. I'm disappearing. Disappearing. Well, I'll just say what Carly I don't played. feel so good, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Waypoint Man. <laughs> Mr. Waypoint Man. Don't worry. Natalie, I, I want to tell you, I understood that reference. I understood that reference. Wow. Thank you. That was, yeah, nothing can top that. So I'll just tell you, send questions to gamingadvice.com. With the subject question and shout outs, as always, to Too Mellow for the track Bump This off of Trunk Fiction. You can check out his music and musings at, at Mellow Makes uh, and his tracks at two, numeral two, two Mellow Makes.bandcamp.com. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. We're on twitch.tv slash Waypoint. And you can read everything we write, and please do, at Waypoint.vice.com. Natalie, before you disappear, before Waypoint Man takes you away. Where can we find you online? Uh, at Natalie Watson on Twitter. <laughs> awesome. Rob, how about you? Uh, just hanging with all my friends. Oh, no. Damn. Oh, God, Patrick. How about you? Uh, you can find me hanging out on Friendster. <gasps> Friendster. It's a cold fucking world. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely cold. I told you get that slanket. <laughs> That's how you... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you want to get some friends? Or that slanket... <laughs> Go to the or coffee shop. Friends will be coming through. <laughs> no problem. Oh, damn. You got a slank they it? Here you got the. <laughs> you got one to share. You get a big enough one. You get one to share. You have all the friends. You share. Get one big enough. You can put the board game inside the slank it with you. Oh, it's like a that would be nice. <laughs> they just en- envelop you in the babadookness. It's very beautiful. Yeah. The what? What, what did you yeah, call I said it? that. Babadookness. It's, it's Babadook, please. Duke? Not a duck, Bob. Not a duck. Not a duck. But it's the Babadookness well. is like the the nest, the, the like the the, the Babadookishness. That's kind of that's how I understood that. Stop. Babadookesque. I stop. This, this We're podcast naming is this over. podcast that. Thank stop. you all Babadookity. for listening. You're welcome. Be good and be good at it. Be good to your Babadookishness. Natalie, I was going to invite you to come play Fields of Despair with me, but it sounds like you already are. Oh, God. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs>
Buried. Buried. <laughs> Buried under those fields of despair. My computer went to sleep just as you said that. Like, <laughs> right before you said it, so it just came to me through a black screen. And it was absolutely perfect. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 